When the girls feel they have too much on their plates to keep up with the housework, they decide a housekeeper will be the solution to all of their problems. After sorting through the applicants, they happily hire Marguerite. But soon their own biases, racism, and fears show themselves when things start going too well with Marguerite's help. Then they go really bad after she's fired. Will the girls break the curse? Will Marguerite forgive them? Will we ever know the full story of the crow that landed in the backyard? All of that and more as we buckle up for a mountain of oh boys. It's time for The Housekeeper. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party. on the side of the house like a real creep, we enter right on cue, just like the one the uncredited cab driver had of ringing the doorbell, and for Dorothy, in white pants and a shirt with a multicolored blouse atop it, to answer it. The cab is there to take Sophia in a dark seafoam green skirt and jacket set with a ruffled blouse and cameo to a wedding. We aren't sure whose, as Dorothy tells Sophia to give the family love because she's off to see Phil's daughter get married. Well, the only Phil we know of so far is Sophia's son, meaning Dorothy isn't attending her own niece's wedding? But given as Sophia inquires as to if a family heirloom lace tablecloth or money to get a neck implant would make a better wedding gift, maybe this isn't Sophia's granddaughter. Not that blood has ever kept her from being insulting. Not acknowledging how rude the question was, Dorothy states it plainly, the tablecloth. Sophia agrees and makes a point... The girl is about to be married. She doesn't have to try to impress him or anyone for that matter with her looks. If her husband doesn't care that she looks like late actor Abe Vigoda, who was in The Godfather, earned an Emmy nomination for his work on Barney Miller, and brought laughter into the homes of thousands on Conan, then why should she? Strange, uh, because they have a sighting that's in the paper today, in today's New York Post, and it's uh, a sighting of Abe Vigoda, who's a friend of ours, Abe Vigoda squeezing avocados at Fairway, quote, contemplating them for a while as if the firmness of their flesh had awakened some potent memories. Come back to bed, Abe. Not now, dear. I'm squeezing avocados. Don't worry, these are just the first of many over-the-line, totally unnecessary rude remarks we'll hear throughout the episode. Yay! Well, great. Now I'm confused again. Sophia is going to be gone for a few weeks, which would only make sense for a family wedding. So she's talking like that about her own granddaughter? You can't say that. Who does she think she is? My Grammy? Hey, Alicia. Hi, Coco. What kind of things would your Grammy say? Oh, she didn't like me. <laughs> My mom's family is the Howell family, and they're very Howell. And I think I was... Meaning what? Just um, quiet, narcissistic, 
southern, very different from the Holland side of the family. And I was the first Holland grandbaby. So I think that might have had an issue. <laughs> and I didn't ever tell my mom some of the stuff that was said because, uh, well, I don't really know why. I think I just thought it was normal or something. And then when I got older and realized that it wasn't, and then I would kind of make offhand comments. And my mom one time was like, what? And I would, I kind of opened up to her and be like, oh, she's, she didn't like me. And it, my grandmother who passed 20 years ago, I think yesterday, she had passed by the time I had told my mom that. So she never really got to talk to her about it. So it, uh, it changed my mom's dynamic with my, with her mother, you know, in an interesting way. A after that was revealed? Yeah. After you told her that? Yeah. I think she processed the grief of losing her very differently. Oh, like it, maybe with a side of relief? Kind of. Yeah. No, yeah, not so much relief because they were close, but I think my mom always thought that there was, no. My mom knew there was meanness to my Grammy. She could, I mean, imagine pissing off Blanche, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you don't want to be on her bad side. Hey, Grammy, leave your baggage at the door. Come here to be Grammy. Yeah. Healthy Grammy. Or shut the f*** up. <laughs> Yeah. My gra my grandma was like that to my sister too about her weight. Mm. Not not so much to me, but mm. it was boy always, that ticks me off. Was it always specifically her weight? I think so. Yeah, I think that that was how she that was how she got her. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and it had an effect. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you've heard my mom talk about her body, so yeah, my Grammy. Yes. I kind of forgot. Yeah, she would talk about my body a lot too. It's a very that's I feel like that's a. Sorry to swear so much. <laughs> I feel like that's like a, a an old school woman's weapon. Like they use it a lot on yeah, golden just girls. Yeah, insult someone's looks. Yeah, yeah, like it's a, I mean, that's for anybody. Even little kids do that. But there's something about grown women that it's like, we all know that that is all of ours, like biggest insecurity. And it's the easiest way to cut. And it's the easiest. It's yeah. just right there. So there you go. Grammy. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in from the lanai, we see Blanche in a flowy gray ensemble, a blonde, lego-haired stranger we've yet to meet, sporting jeans, a white-collared shirt, and a periwinkle button-up, followed by Rose in a namesake-colored dress. Explaining they have busy schedules and lives, the girls have decided to get a housekeeper, and this is one of their prospective hires. Coco, would you ever hire a housekeeper or a um, support personnel of any kind? No, the just the very idea of it is a real turnoff for me, dog. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine someone cleaning up my stuff. Yeah. And seeing my filth. I fantasize about it in a way of like, wow, I wish I didn't have this pile of dishes to do. And it'd be nice if someone else appeared and did them. We can do it. Exactly. It sucks, but we can do it. And to have someone come in to do it just feels weird. Always has the idea of it. My mom did that for a little while. That she's a housekeeper? Oh, no, I'm sorry. She had she a housekeeper? Had, she had a housekeeper that came in once a month or once every uh -huh. month to do like a deep clean. And she was lovely. But yeah. it always, I would just be there like, uh, should I talk? Should oh I like, my talk God. to you? I don't right? know. <laughs> I'm just up in my room beefing. I'm curious for you, Coco, if you could hire someone to do that one job and maybe you never have to see them. So then it's not that feeling. What would you hire them for? Chef. Definitely oh, yeah. a chef. Yeah. That would be just 
that would be heaven. Yeah. You make a menu or whatever. You're like, hey, can you whip me up a, a Zaw right now, please? <laughs> I'd love a Zaw. I just, I just wanted to know Zaw. But also soup, salads, breadsticks, and uh, a whole lot more. And when you're here, your family. That's all I want is a family. <laughs> well, she did have potential. But after explaining she really liked their house compared to where she last lived, San Quentin State Prison in California... Maybe not so much. Midge, we learn her name to be via the credits, had spent 15 years in prison. During that time, she claims to have seen Johnny Cash eight times. All of this gives Blanche pause, as it should. No, not because she's been in legal trouble. No, not that. She served her time. She's trying to get a job. But perhaps her lying is what's concerning. Yeah, Johnny Cash, the man in black, sorry Rose, not the man in plaid, did find great success with his live performance albums recorded at various prisons, and he did perform at San Quentin, but only once. It made for a number one country and pop album. And I'll walk out a wiser, weaker man Mr. Congressman, you can't understand As for the second part, well, maybe Midge isn't lying, we're just assuming their gender, as they claim to have been housed in the male-only prison that hasn't housed a female since 1932. So instead, we'll just celebrate Midge living her best new free life. Playing Midge is Deborah Rose, no relation to Moira, who acted in Troop Beverly Hills, The Wonder Years, Columbo, and Murder, she wrote. After dozens of interviews, the girls are at a loss. There is just no good help. Cue the doorbell and a new prospect. In a playful, flowing dress of white, blues, reds, and yellows, there's another interviewee. With an accent one would place in the South, perhaps in New Orleans, or in the Caribbean, like Haitian, we meet Marguerite. Marguerite, known in real life as Paula Kelly, got her start using her singing, dancing, acting, and choreography skills on Broadway. Her choreography and dancing had her working with such icons as Quincy Jones, Gregory Hines, Sammy Davis Jr., Gene Kelly, and Richard Pryor. Her many talents were awarded with a London Variety Best Actress and one of the first NAACP Image Awards. Her television and film appearances included The Women of Brewster Place, of which she earned her second Emmy nomination, St. Elsewhere, Night Court, Kojak, Soylent Green, The Andromeda Strain, and The Carol Burnett Show. Her distinguished career only making this role and episode that much more embarrassing. After introductions, Marguerite doesn't get into her personal life. She's focused on the job at hand, which is to get a job. After explaining she's a hard worker who will do so for reasonable money, the girls are nearly stunned at how, well, normal and promising that all seems. But there is one catch. Marguerite is black. But if that's an issue, she can be white, but they won't be able to afford her. Which is sadly a joke that still really holds up. Sorry, Dorothy. Even if you're so excited to meet such a great person you want to kiss her, she doesn't go there with her bosses. The only freak in this house is Blanche. <laughs> Speaking of, just then she gets a call from Norman, a man who is canceling a date with her for the second time, and she just can't believe it. Rose, keep your logic of him not being interested in her to yourself. 
why, ever since Donna Rice, who was mentioned a few episodes ago as she was the topic of an alleged affair with a politician, moved to Los Angeles after the scandal made it impossible for her to keep a job, Blanche is the hottest thing in Miami. L.A. was okay for Donna. She passed on multiple offers of movies, books, a Playboy interview, but the only gig she agreed to was for No Excuses Jeans. When the scandal died down, she was able to move back east, residing in northern Virginia. I make no excuses. I only wear them. No excuses. Sportswear and accessories. Showing her worth right out of the gate, Marguerite has an idea for Blanche in regards to Norman. No, it isn't silk sheets and a Catholic schoolgirl outfit. That has already been a failure. No, Marguerite pulls out a bottle of mysterious brownish liquid in a glass bottle and gifts it to Blanche. In a White Diamonds by Elizabeth Taylor inspired moment, Marguerite tells Blanche to dab a little of the potion on her neck and she'll never have to worry about Norman again. These have always brought me luck. White Diamonds, the intriguing fragrance from Elizabeth Taylor. Well, that does it for the girls. Love advice, gifts, willingness to work for them. She's hired. Agreeing to start the next morning, Rose sees Marguerite out, and after another mention of the gift, the girls are even more curious as to what it is. Well, Rose isn't. She knows it's a love potion. She knows firsthand how a love potion can work. It's how her own grandparents came to be a couple. After her grandpappy consumed foot salve, he got his stomach pumped by the new nurse there, who put the hose on the wrong spot. The other two options that come to mind, I don't know that they're all that pleasant. Anyway, bingo bongo, stummo pumpo, they fell in love, got married, and here's Rose to tell their tale. Blanche doesn't care what the bottle contains, she just wants Norman. Dorothy doesn't care either, she just wants some if it works, and she'll sell her mother to get some if she has to. It's been, uh, let's say, a few days, and Marguerite is officially the housekeeper on Richmond Street. Running out to the lanai in a sassy, not-quite-zebra-print-but-not-not-a-zebra-print blouse over a white shirt with a mauve gray pant is Dorothy, who has found something strange under her bed. No, it's not a colorful dust bunny, as Rose in her teal button-up, bright blue cardigan and jeans comments. After realizing it's a rock, Blanche, in her all pink, but now it's been washed a bunch, so it's a little bit lighter, sweatshirt, is confused about what she's looking at. The hint of oh boys have been swirling in the air, but here we get our first. Looking over her shoulder to Marguerite, in her yellow blouse, light green skirt, large brown belt, and colorful head wrap, along with the best earrings on television, Dorothy proclaims she believes it to be a charm, implying it has been left by their new employee. Unashamed, Marguerite joins the conversation, confirming that, yes, it is a charm. It's a trick that's been carried through generations. She noticed the bags under Dorothy's eyes, which are always there, and figured she could use some better sleep. Rose and Blanche are on Marguerite's side. Those bags of Dorothy's are going to need more than a magical rock. Apologizing after her attempt to help Dorothy led to asking her friends to just hit her with lumber instead of their insulting words, Marguerite excuses herself from the lanai. Dorothy rudely claims their housekeeper isn't thinking straight because she's inhaled the fumes of their floor cleaner. But Rose points out, um, didn't you just say how you've been sleeping so well? 
which if you were feeling overwhelmed with housework and you now had passed it on to someone else, that would probably do more for your sleep than a hidden rock. On top of the trinket, Dorothy feels that Marguerite's work hasn't been up to par. Blanche disagrees, although her measurement of success doesn't involve the house, just the fact that she and Norman have been inseparable since she started using the potion. And yes, it is okay to say white on rice, as it is only in relation to the color of the food. You could easily say, like, red on a tomato or yellow on a banana, just in case anyone was as worried as I was that the origins of that phrase were dipping into oh-boy territory. Sure, Blanche can agree, she's maybe not the best house cleaner on the block. Not the best, counters Dorothy. She's late all the time, she's broken a ton of stuff, she doesn't clean well, and she even threw out the People magazine before it was read. True blasphemy. Okay, sure, all of those things are true, but there have been so many good things going on in their personal lives, Rose points out. Blanche and Norman are together, Dorothy's getting her sleep, and Sandy Duncan has a TV show. Best known for her role as Peter Pan on Broadway, Sandy Duncan has done television and film work, including Bonanza, Midnight Cowboy, and starred in her own Sandy Duncan series. In the late 70s, she appeared in Roots and The Love Boat before focusing on voiceover work for animation. In 1987, she got a role on Valerie Harper's show Valerie, which would eventually become The Hogan Family, starring Jason Bateman and Sandy as the matriarch. The show also included Dionne Warwick's That's What Friends Are For in a hauntingly sad, very special episode about the HIV-AIDS epidemic that has stayed with me for over 30 years. Life is such a sweet insanity It's nice to know your friends are near In the heart of every family There's a love that's waiting there for you This is making a connection in my head now. Uh-huh. At this very same... I was a fan of the Hogan family, mm-hmm. as was my sister, I imagine. Oh, yeah. And somewhere, my sister might have it, there's an audio cassette that we recorded at Six Flags Magic Mountain of me, my sister, and her friend, Andrea, singing That's What Friends Are For. And I bet it was because that was popular because of that. Yeah. Wow. I'd love to hear why that. Because why else would it be... Why, why would we... Why would we be doing that? Why on earth that song? I would really love to hear that tape if you could dig it out of the archive somewhere. Yeah, I'll ask my sister. (laughs) Unbelievable. Those things are all great, but she's not getting paid to be a good luck charm. She's there to clean. Proving Dorothy might have some internalized racism going on as Blanche has found the non-thrown-out People magazine just in time for Dorothy to use it as a weapon against Rose's hairspray and noggin. In the kitchen, it's a new morning, and Rose, in a light floral dress and matching light pink apron, is sweeping the kitchen to Dorothy's horror. Late once again, Rose has taken over housekeeping duties as Marguerite is busy picking the hair off the chin of a dwarf, an excuse that could only work on Rose. Ellen has arrived. Lee Grant once saying that an actress is someone who she's committed suicide and is sliding down the bathroom door and notices herself in the mirror and said, ah, this is how you play diet. Sorry, that's a furious Blanche in a yellow-colored shirt with white pants, and she can't believe her blouse, which was ironed by Marguerite, has had the buttons melted shut. No more flashing for her. Dorothy in a jacket that matches the color of the shirt she's wearing, and the color is 
gray, off-white, mauve, corpse? I would call gray and mauve grave. Ooh. Grave color. I like that. Thanks. Anyway, she doesn't agree with Rose on this one. They've had enough talks with Marguerite about her performance. It is time to end it. This is nothing personal about her. Marguerite is great. She's been wonderful to them on a personal level, but she just can't clean. Rose is understanding because she had a teacher who couldn't do her job. This answers a lot of questions we have about Rose. So Rose's teacher started to give bogus facts, like humans are made of 80% Ovaltine and that mustard gas was related to hot dogs. Well, technically the milk flavoring mix could be used in water, But the mustard gas, that one is totally wrong. When it was originally discovered, mustard gas was used to treat, get this cocoa, psoriasis. The blistering the gas causes humans externally and internally has shown no medical use, which is why it has been an agent of chemical warfare since World War I. You hear that, St. Olaf? You don't have to celebrate Independence Day with an omelet on a bun anymore. Hearing that story, Dorothy has added getting Rose a CAT scan to the list of things to do, right after they fire Marguerite, who, like Rose's teacher, just isn't qualified for her job. Not wanting to jinx the time she's had with Norman, Blanche hopes the firing can wait just a few more days, or at least until after he takes her to see the biographical play of President Harry S. Truman called Give Him Hell, Harry, starring William Christopher, who is best known as the hat-wearing priest on M.A.S.H., Frustrated, Dorothy can't understand why a date to the theater has anything to do with not firing Marguerite. Even though Blanche argues that it was her potion that brought them together, she knows she'll never win against Dorothy, so she agrees to let her fire her. Why does she have to do it? Because she's the meanest, of course. Coming to her defense, Rose points out that Dorothy's not the meanest, she just looks that way. Since they all hired Marguerite, they should all fire her. Dorothy appreciates the support, pointing out that Rose looks the dumbest. Having found that dwarf hair, Marguerite, in a taupe blouse, colorful skirt, small apron, and a head wrap that looks like the colors of a sunset, has finally arrived. So sad to lose her, Rose begins consoling her before she can understand why. Unprepared for the conversation, Dorothy deflects, claiming Rose is upset after learning the journalist, critic, and famed mustachioed man, Jean Shallot, wanted his hair to look like the frizzy, curly mess it was. Changing her story, Marguerite claimed she was late as she had to get special herbs to continue her aphrodisiac making for Blanche. Well, now they simply can't fire her, but Dorothy reminds Blanche in a calm, soothing tone to use the aphrodisiac everyone else does, liquor and black undies. And they do love talking about aphrodisiacs, and that maybe is the only actual one. The ultimate. (laughs) Two people in a room, or whoever, however many, wearing black undies, sipping down, sucking down some vodka. Forget it. Feeling upset about all of it, the girls just want to get the firing over with so they can move on. Finding Marguerite dusting in the living room, they ask her to talk. First, Blanche pulls the I have a black friend card by claiming that Tootie, played by Kim Fields, was her favorite on Facts of Life. Oh, boy. Reading between the lines, Marguerite knows what's up. How could they fire her? You thought she was good enough when you hired her, you know, before you saw if she was a good cleaner or not. Sorry, Marg, that's a weak argument. Point to the girls. Dorothy explains, they like her on a personal level, but it's just not working out. Finally getting her nerve, Rose blurts out, You're fired! A for effort, F for timing. 
with a sad, soft voice, Marguerite can't believe she's getting fired for the first time ever. After Blanche apologizes for their doing that, Marguerite's tone changes. Still soft, but there's a sternness. You are making a big mistake. With one more glance before she goes, Marguerite is out the front door and out of the girls' lives. The worst part is over. She's been fired. They can get back to maintaining their well-kept home without worrying about their magazines being tossed. Rose was kind of shaken by her last words, though. Dorothy reminding her, of course she's upset. She was just fired. After a commotion in the kitchen, Dorothy reevaluates those words. Maybe they were more of an actual threat to destroy the kitchen? Running inside, they find the kitchen sink faucet has basically exploded and water is shooting everywhere. Luckily, they've rebuilt a bathroom, so I'm sure this won't be a huge issue for them. It's a beautiful afternoon on the lanai where Dorothy is grilling some burgers. After a softball comes flying into the yard, Dorothy throws it back, politely asking the kid to scram. In that one tunic-looking blouse of hers, Dorothy is very casual about putting her metal tongs on the barbecue, doing other things, and then picking them right back up. Almost like this is a TV show, and she really isn't cooking. When Rose arrives home, she needs to talk. She's had the worst day. Her alarm didn't go off, so she was late to get ready. When she tried to leave, she found she had a flat tire. Then she smashed her hand in a door. All of that, and she's in a pink and white striped shirt with a mauve taupe jacket over it and matching pants. She has had it with this day. She is ready to crawl into bed and go to town on a box of the cheese substance, Velveeta. Blue's great B.B. King wasn't a spokesperson for Velveeta, but this does give us a little bit of an oh boy, as the gals are implying he would eat fake cheese in bed, as he was outspoken about his struggle with diabetes, while he continued to eat notoriously not the healthiest things, gaining noticeable weight. This could have also been a slight towards Rose's idea of coping with the sadness of her day, as opposed to making the beautiful music B.B. King made when he had the blues. When Dorothy offers to make Rose a drink, she's happy to have it, so she goes to take a seat on one of the lounge chairs. Giving us some classic Betty White physical comedy that we never get enough of, the bottom of the chair goes out, flinging Rose's butt to the ground and her legs over her head. Immediately, she throws her hands up. That's it. She gives up on today. That also elicited one of the hardest laughs I've maybe ever heard from Coco. I haven't been surprised by something funny like that in a very, very long time. I did not see it coming. It's very unexpected. At all. It was so, so funny. The way <laughs> her body falls and that she was, she wasn't that surprised about it. Yeah. She's like, felt. it's like when she was sitting, she's like, there's like a 50-50 that I'm going to fall yeah. through this chair. And then it happened. And that's why she threw her hands up. Dorothy promises Rose, it's not bad luck. You're just having a bad day. As she does, the softball from earlier comes flying over once again right onto Rose's chest. As she stands there numb and in disbelief, Dorothy assures her once again, it's just a bad day. But Dorothy's real feelings are exposed when Rose attempts to join her at the barbecue and she yells for the cursed one to get away. 
Also having a bad day and joining the girls is Blanche, who has just been dumped by Norman for a fat woman. You can't say that. Uh, I'm not going to oh boy fat here as I have personally reclaimed the word. And even though she is using it in a bullying manner, it's like, all right, Blanche, if that's what you have to hold on to, instead of looking inside to see why you and Norman weren't as compatible as you thought, perhaps you just weren't right for each other. You don't need to chase him. You need to find someone you fit with, not who you need a potion for. Even though Rose apologizes for Blanche's heartache, she feels it's Dorothy who should be saying sorry. She's the one who has brought this bad luck into the home with the firing of Marguerite. And now Blanche's biases are coming through. Marguerite left, and now they've all been cursed. While it was Dorothy who had issues with her before, now that their luck is bad, both Rose and Blanche are in agreement. They have been cursed. Oh, boy. Besides the sink explosion, the refrigerator has broken, Dorothy isn't sleeping, the cars are all having trouble, Blanche has been dumped for a porker, which I will give an oh boy, and a... You can't say that. Bickering, the ladies decide the only thing to do would be to offer Marguerite to have the job back. Dorothy feels that it is a bit extreme, it's not like those things that are happening are so unheard of, it's just been bad timing. Call her when something really strange happens, like a, a large man in a black crow costume falling from the sky and landing in their yard with a parachute and everything. <coughs> Playing that big black bird is Carl Ciarfelio. As a stuntman and actor, he has well over 300 credits, which are due mostly to the 200 credits he earned for his stunts. Along with being a producer and assistant director, he has appeared in MacGyver, Falcon Crest, Eve of Destruction, Step by Step, Red Shoe Diaries, Natural Born Killers, He Was the Thing in Fantastic Four, Casino, Fight Club, Con Air. His stunt work has appeared in Sharknado, Community, Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, Mission Impossible 3, Bad Santa, some of my favorite films like Romeo and Michelle and Sister Act 2, along with Wayne's World, Beetlejuice, Halloween 4, and Corky Romano. I know and love him from Casino, where he is the guy who gets his eyeball squished out of his head uh, while it's in a vice. There you go. Joe Pesci do it. <laughs> That's how Joe Pesci do. I didn't recognize him because of the beak. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but he's very recognizable. He's been great in a lot of stuff. He's a big, beefy he's boy. He's a big boy. Love him. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to kind of read some of his stuff because he not only would do the stunts, but he did a ton of stunt choreography. So he's the guy like putting together the big sequences for people. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. And he was in Eve of Destruction, another one of our favorite films for those that enjoyed pathology. <laughs> Gregory Hines. <laughs> Gregory Hines. Tap dancing superstar Gregory Hines is a is a burnt out cop on the on the trail of a lady with a dazzling earring, of course. A lady robot. Terminator. It's not a toy, Colonel. She's poised. I'm very sensitive. Charming. A tease. Why don't we just go take a room? With a temper. I'll call you sometime, okay? You'll never turn her off. If we don't find her in the next 24 hours, she'll explode with enough force to take out. 20 to 30 city blocks. Target is still at large. Gregory Hines. Eve of destruction. Not just another pretty face. Please don't say this. I'm very sensitive.
After staring in stunned silence, the crow finally remarks, This isn't the New Year's Day football game the Orange Bowl played annually in Miami, now is it? Seeing as it's not the holiday season, I can only assume the crow had a good sense of humor about his failed landing, wherever it was supposed to actually be. Hoping to undo whatever curse they are certain is upon them, the ladies, Rose in a light pink dress, Blanche in a light blue version of her vagina costume from last week, and Dorothy in a denim shirt with a classic cross-chest edition of floral fabric, are all preparing for Marguerite's arrival. With champagne and snacks, Dorothy feels they're doing a bit too much, that is until she's reminded of the man with the bird outfit. Deciding Dorothy's the meanest but also the bravest, Rose and Blanche hold one another as she goes to get the door. Welcoming back the woman that they're scared of, who has arrived in a bright purple long-sleeved shirt with what looks to be artistic renderings of fireworks and flowers, with a pleated skirt that has even brighter blues and purples, Marguerite takes a seat on the couch. She was pretty surprised when they called to offer her her job back. On top of the champagne, Blanche gives her an obscene bouquet of flowers and a tiara in a box. A strange gift, but not for Rose. She did the shopping, and she has always wanted one. Just when I think I can't relate to anyone but mean and brave Dorothy, Rose has to go on about having always wished for a tiara of her own, only to end up with wooden shoes. I was never stuck with the shoes, but I always wanted a tiara. Every birthday was the same for Rose and her clogs, except for the time she was able to make a pair of keds out of a lump of coal. Fed up with the stupidity, Dorothy directs Marguerite's powers towards Rose, as though she was Mary Cosby from Real Housewives Salt Lake City. If you come for me, I will send Jesus after you. Patronizing Marguerite, decorating her with all they've purchased, it's clear a few weeks have passed as Sophia is back from the wedding. With the champagne, flowers, and crown, it's no wonder Sophia thinks she's walked into the Miss Black America pageant, which was started in 1968 as a protest against the lack of diversity in the Miss America pageant, and it still continues to this day. Hopping on the celebration train with some champagne of her own, Sophia asks if the Supremes, led by Diana Ross, who broke up in 1977, had gotten back together. Well, they never did. Also, oh boy, Sophia, just because it appears a black person is celebrating something doesn't mean you have to pull out all of the black references you can think of. Booting her mother out of the room before she can say anything else, Dorothy begs her to go take a nap. She doesn't need it. She looks permanently tired. She needs to find out more about this overly glamorous housekeeper. Taking her mother into the kitchen, stretching her across the room like she was the green clay humanoid Gumby, Dorothy tells her mother to be nice to their guest. Sophia can be nice, even though she was raised in a cave. Dorothy clarifies, I'm not talking about being polite. Yeah, be polite. But also, don't ask her to do anything. She is not to cook, clean, or even sit near dust. This, of course, leaves Sophia confused as to what kind of a gig a housekeeper job really is. Then Dorothy breaks the news. They have been cursed. The only way to fix it is to have Marguerite there, pay her, and walk on eggshells while nothing gets done. Sounds like a perfect plan. Sophia, queen of the curses, isn't buying it. All joking aside, when Dorothy becomes emotional, it's clear the fear is real. Sophia agrees, leaves the kitchen, and immediately asks Marguerite why she's put a curse on her daughter. This, of course, has Marguerite confused and Dorothy certain they will all be turned into a small citrus fruit. Fun fact, 
if you take a look in the hallway when Sophia comes out of the kitchen right then, there's like a secret door because of the camera angle. And you can see what I believe is the little hallway for the garage door slash back door slash mystery hallway. So keep an eye out for that. If you want to talk curses, just ask Sophia. It was her curse, not Shelley Long's desire to start a movie career, that had her leaving cheers. Sorry, Sophia, it wasn't just the movie career or your curse, but Shelley's hatred of Kelsey Grammer and his Frasier character. She was also constantly frustrating Ted Danson, and overall she struggled to get along with showrunners. Sadly, when she left the show, she did get to work with Midge and Troop Beverly Hills, but the success of Cheers failed to follow. Although, let's not forget her brilliant turn as Carol Brady in the Brady Bunch movies, written by Golden Girls' own Stan Zimmerman. Marguerite is in shock. Not just at Sophia's claims, but the realization that this group of white women, without talking to her about their concerns, has decided that all of their luck, good or bad, was related to her accent, skin color, or probably both. As for the love potion, that was just Chanel number no. 5, the biggest selling perfume of all time. Sadly, it doesn't have the same powerful effect on men when Dorothy wears it. And that magic rock under the bed? It's Sophia's. The painted rock was her first paycheck and it had gone missing, which means Marguerite's whole it'll help you sleep was a lie, which she freely admits to, and she only did it because they've been right. She's not a good housekeeper. Finding that rock, they would have known that she hadn't been cleaning under the beds. Rose and Marguerite are both impressed with her ability to lie, and they agree her cleaning skills were subpar, which was due to her going to law school and using the mornings at the empty house to do her homework. Well, this confirms it. Norman really did dump Blanche, and Sophia can't believe it was for someone fatter than Blanche's self-proclaimed size 10. Oh, boy. Now it's all cleared up. Marguerite doesn't have any powers. The ladies were just having a bad luck streak. This leaves them feeling embarrassed, silly, and dumb. For Rose, it's as dumb as she felt when she learned the 5'8", 260-pound creator of Marshall Matt Dillon for the radio show of Gunsmoke, narrator of The Fugitive, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and Hudson Hawk, William Conrad, was just the star of Jake and the Fat Man, not one guy in a jacket and one guy in pants. She doesn't even say it like she thought it was two small people or children standing on each other, just a pants guy and a jacket guy. It's okay if you're confused by the joke. Blanche was, too. Coco, anything to say about another one of your favorite films, Hudson Hawk? Featuring Mr. William Conrad? Exactly 500 years later, an artiste of a different field, the one of cat burglary, was getting out of Sing Sing. He was known as the Hudson Hawk. His narration to me is iconic. I loved that movie when it came out when I was 12 years old. I read the novelization. I played the video game that sucked. <laughs> and I've seen Hudson Hawk. People say, I mean, I say it a lot. I've, I've definitely seen a bunch of movies like 100 times in my life. Hudson Hawk is one of them. 
I know everything about. Which is wild because you introduced it to me like a year ago. And there's nothing like it. That is one of the greatest <laughs> bad movies yeah. of all time. Huge budget. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis at the height of his power. And it was his passion project, right? Yeah, where he he's like to... a you know a, a blues singing cat burglar <laughs> yeah. called Hudson Hawk who gets swept up into this international intrigue with these people that want to uh, use alchemy to turn lead into gold based <laughs> off of Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci's sketches of this alchemy machine. <laughs> And it's Sandra Bernhard and Richard E. Grant. And a lot of slapstick. And a lot of slapstick and a mean dog. And James Coburn is doing kung fu. And all the other bad guys are named after candy bars. And Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis sing during their robberies, the time out their robberies. Um, There's a part where a butler cuts a guy's head off with two blades he has hidden in his tuxedo sleeves. Um Aren't there cartoon sounds too? Yes, when when like, James zoom, Coburn zoom, zoom. James Coburn and Bruce Willis are fighting at the end, there's like just Looney Tunes sounds happening. <laughs> um, it's like an adult yeah. noir Roger Rabbit, but without the cartoon part film. It's a movie that shouldn't be R-rated, I think, and it's extremely R-rated. <laughs> but it does begin and end with a donkey. Well, there you go. Different donkeys, different time periods, same shot. Hello, donkey. Hudson Hawk does have some funny lines from Bruce Willis, but this project was ill-conceived, I think, right at the script level. It was. In fact, it's unbelievable that anyone could have read the script of this movie and thought that it could be produced as a successful film because every single line starts from zero and gets to nowhere. I also didn't like the fact that throughout the movie, people would jump out of windows and instead of being killed, they would land in chairs, sitting next to somebody, would start talking to them. People turn up coincidentally without any explanation on two different continents to the point where you're just sitting there feeling whoever made this movie was completely addled. There was just absolutely no window. With an apology regarding their superstitions, Marguerite tells them not to worry about it, and she sees herself out after thanking Sophia for getting that uppity white woman, Shelley Long, off the television. Just when you think everything has been wrapped up, Sophia has an update for Dorothy about the wedding. It was a beautiful affair until the bride lifted her veil, leaving Sophia shuddering at the thought of what was beneath the dress. Is Sophia body shaming her you granddaughter's vagina? What's happening to free speech? I do I do want to throw in a personal note that as someone who has had a cleaning job for close to 30 years now, if someone happens to be there after hours and comes into the kitchen I'm working in and sees me, hello, would you clean o this yeah. for me? <laughs> there I, I cannot count how many times I've seen, like, a taken aback look. And I know exactly what that look is. I know that it is because I'm white and maybe I'm younger than they expect or maybe I'm older than they expect. And there have been times that I've been spoken to that I just want to go, you know, my regular job is working in education. Like, you don't have to speak to me that way. Excuse and- me, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> Through the years, we've had people leave notes in, like, broken Spanish, and they don't even know what they're writing. They're just throwing in some Spanish, and it's, like, so rude and racist and just... So I implore everyone to 
not assume you know what, you know, maybe your office has cleaning people. Don't assume you know what they look like or what they are going through or that that's their only job or their life is sad or they're less than you. So just be nice to your cleaning people at all places, everywhere. Granny. Between the body jokes, racism, and judgments, one of the most harmful parts of this episode is how it handles the representation of voodoo. The girls never really say it outright, but with tokens, spells, and Marguerite's accent, one can infer they are referencing the religion. From its inception in the West to the whitewashed spelling, those on the outside have from the start misunderstood and misrepresented it. How it has been portrayed in movies and television have left most people assuming it's a dangerous form of some sort of witchcraft, which it is not. It is a religion with prayers, meditations, and rituals, just like any other. It's almost like a bunch of white colonizers came upon Africans practicing the religion and without asking any questions decided it was evil and bad. I'm sure it had nothing to do with their race or anything like that. As always, and like all of us, the ladies have some growing to do. It's one thing to not be racist, you know, to welcome everyone, to not say certain words, but it's quite another to be anti-racist. That means to not only call out racism when you see it in others, like how the girls could have mentioned to Dorothy in the beginning that she seemed to be blaming the new girl a lot and in a way that might have been rooted in her being black or Haitian or how any of the girls could have recognized the fear they were experiencing as their own internal biases based in systemic and cultural racism. Besides it not being her job to do, Marguerite was in a bad power dynamic, so she didn't have the space to call them out on their microaggressions, like how they decorated her like a Christmas tree out of fear. When I realized it was time for this episode, I almost skipped it. The jokes are mean, their behavior is embarrassing, and their racism is just not funny. But now, be it age or the education I've gained while working on my own biases and ignorance, I can appreciate it much more. Marguerite knows from the start to make jokes about her race, and then, as she undoubtedly has dealt with many times before, she merely exists and watches the white folks around her develop their own misconceptions of her, leading to a change of power dynamic, but not in a beneficial way. It's hard to watch the people we love show ignorance regarding race, but it's also important to see. So yes, it is sad to see Dorothy, a well-educated, open-minded, kind woman that we love, let her judgments come through, but in the end, it's great to see all of them learn they just hired a lousy housekeeper and their own fears had been messing with them. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get scary with nothing to fear but fear itself. If someone's going to talk loud enough for me to hear it... Uh, Then I guess it's for me to hear. I suppose so. You've got to complain about the grannies. You've got to complain about the grannies. I won't tolerate mean grannies around me. Get out of here. No way. Cool grannies only. No way. You could be spicy. Yeah. Still be mean. Beefing and beaten. How dare you. Not when there's a person over. Can I have a Zaw specific chef so that every meal is a form of Zaw? Really likes their house compared to where she laughed, laughed, lived, loved. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I would like to say on the record, I fully denounce the name Deborah. It's Debhorrent. <laughs> the Caribbean area may be Haiti. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Hey, yeah, yeah, hey. Are those Bugle Boy? No, they're no, no excuse. excuses. <laughs> Jeanses. I, 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 it's ironic to imagine me wearing a no fear outfit <laughs> as that boy who was fear. One of my best friends at the time had a bunch Truck. of those. Truck was, right. a, <laughs> Truck was a big Johnson guy. Oh, he sure was. Oh, I've seen. Not yes. in, not in his, not in life, but in his t-shirts. <laughs> I've seen it. Oh, you saw his little Johnson? Absolutely, it's just like a little button. <laughs> no shaft. After her grandpappy. Uh, why? Cause I didn't sleep. Uh, why? Cause I'm hungry. Uh, shut up, everything. Meh. And that's why we love music. Cherished memories don't have them. Gone. Coco out. It's liquid gold. C.R. Folio. Carl C.R. Folio. Jojo Siwa. Bickering, the ladies decide the only thing to do. Bickering, the ladies decide the only thing they can do would be to offer. Do <sighs> you think crow? I thought maybe Toucan. He's listed as a uh, black crow in the credits. Hey, little thing, let me let you in, cause mama, I'm so hard to handle now. Get some round. Just stop having babies, everybody. Especially Kate Hudson. Doesn't mean you have to pull out all the... The Fugitive, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and Hudson Hawk really... Guy who cooks pasta and or eggs every single week in that one microwave and then leaves the white crust all over everything for everybody to deal with. Who are you? What is your deal? Who raised you? What is going on? Knock it off. I hate you. If we find you, <laughs> you're f***ing dead. <laughs> <Ba -na 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 -na. laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.